Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Imagine it. Just came off an 18-hour workday. It's 5 in the morning now. You have to get up. You got to go to work despite being depressively exhausted. The labor is backbreaking. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually backbreaking. And though you need to sleep in and take care of your well-being, you ask yourself, how will I survive if I take space to nurture myself? What violence awaits? If I choose freedom, I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. Now, I may have sounded like I was describing a situation from slavery, life on a plantation, but no, that's the reality for many of us today. And the psychology is no different than most of us navigating this anti-Black world, working and living on the plantations that exist in our daily lives. To break free from the generational chains shackling us to white supremacy requires a level of healing that today's guest understands deeply. Dr. Christina Cleveland is a social psychologist, public theologian, author, activist, And as a founder and director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, Christina urges justice advocates and others alike to learn the realities of subjugative systems while also strengthening and nourishing our spiritual capacity to break free from those realities. Veiled by the low-hanging trees of a Memphis wood, Mary trekked through mud and soil as fallen branches scraped against her knees. There was nothing more she wanted than freedom. The lashes on her back, the silencing of her thoughts and feelings, the constant fear of what was next led her to plan a great escape from the plantation. Few joined her resistance. The indoctrination into fear through violent oppression separated many from their roots. But as Mary fled the plantation, she carried with her a secret weapon, her spirituality, a key to our ancestors' resistance. For example, when the British fought the Ashanti Empire before colonizing them, the Ashanti never recognized the British as their betters. And eventually, they overcame British rule. But they didn't do this alone. They were guided by their culture and spirituality. Their power to overcome was based on their cultural beliefs, not those of the British. This means 
they never felt inferior or felt the need to assimilate into British culture. That fearlessness and sacred connection is why slaveholders stripped any semblance of it from our enslaved ancestors, beating them ruthlessly into submission. And that forceful disconnection trapped many of us on the plantation. But white oppressors weren't totally successful. During the civil rights movement, Black preachers initially weren't vocal about our rights. Many more remained silent from fear of the brutal consequences of defying white supremacy. It wasn't until the death of Martin Luther King Jr. that more faith leaders recognized the need for liberation and combined that faith with activism. Liberation and spirituality have always gone hand in hand. We cannot minimize how truly scary it is to break away from an oppressive system, but it must start somewhere. It must start from within. No matter what form your spirituality takes, overcoming fear is not easy work. But when we begin healing ourselves, we can move outward to heal our community and take those transformative steps away from fear and towards liberation. Christina, thanks for joining us today on Black History Year. Could you tell us what does Black liberation look like to you? Thank you for asking that question and for having me on. Black liberation is being free in every way, economically, socially, physically, to move into our divine birthright as ancient and current Black people who are designed to just thrive. Christina, what does your work do to help push us towards that vision of Black liberation that you share? Yeah, I lead a small organization called Sacred Folk, and our tagline is Black Liberation for All People. And so we center the Black liberation story in our work, and we use storytelling, psychology, theology, and practices to help us connect with our divinity and also connect with uh, the fears and the anxiety and the stress that's preventing us from walking into that. So it's all about awareness of just what's going on around us. How can we have a sociological imagination, which is an, which is an understanding of how the structures of society impact us. And so we, we bring ourselves into that conversation so we can become aware. So then we can start to say, okay, so what can we do communally and individually? Dig in a little more. I'd like to know what that looks like. Yeah, you know, we recently just completed an e-course that's now available for people to do as a self-study that is called Liberating the Mind, Body, Spirit from White Supremacy. And really, it's about looking at, you know, how have I been formed to be addicted to this capitalistic model of working? How have I been formed to consume what society says about me as a Black person? How have I been formed to develop spiritualities that support some of those systems of domination and subjugation? And what does it look like for me to, to take hold of my own identity as a Black person and start moving towards liberation? And so we, we go through five different stages of Black racial identity in that process and look at what are the fears at each stage that, that keep us there? You know, what am I afraid of? 
And then what what sort of spiritual practice and psychological practice can I pivot to so that I can move along into becoming who I was really designed to be? It's really fascinating. And it sounds very valuable to, to our community. And when you were speaking, it made me think of um, this concept that I just recently learned about within the past couple of years, the Black racial identity development concept. Is this course connected to that or is it a framework that you've developed outside of that? Yeah, that's a great question. It's connected to that. My background as a social psychologist has put me in conversation with lots of theorists who look at racial identity development. And these come from a critical race perspective, this idea that we all are immersed in this white supremacist, anti-Black culture, and it affects all of us, whether we're aware of it or not. And so for many Black people, the starting point is How have I been affected by this white supremacist culture? And it really varies, right? I grew up in a Black family that was pretty immersed in white culture. But I also know people who grew up in Black families that had a much stronger Black identity. But then you go to school or you go to church and you go to the grocery store and you're you're exposed to white supremacy. And that impacts us. And so kind of ground zero for Black racial identity is looking at how am I captive to the white supremacist idea of what it means to be black. And then the stages move along to more and more liberation from that. So eventually you get to the point where your connection to abundance, your connection to spirit, to universe, um, allows you to step out of some of those spaces that can be harmful. It's kind of like, it's thinking a little bit about like being on the plantation versus being off. And I know as I started thinking about my life in terms of what sorts of plantations am I on, knowingly and unknowingly, and willingly and unwillingly? And why am I still here in this particular job that's bad for my health, bad for my relationships, <laughs> bad for, you know, why am I still here? Or why am I still, why do I feel like I owe it to my family to be in a relationship with them without any boundaries? Even if that relationship is harmful. What is it about what I've been taught about what it means to be Black that says that being faithful to others is more important than being faithful to myself? What is it that I've been taught about being a Black woman that I have to be strong? I have to be stoic. Nothing can affect me. I can't show emotion. If I show emotion, maybe anger. But I can't be soft. I can't be vulnerable. I can't have needs. You know, these are all constructs that we've that have been passed on to us And the process of Black racial liberation is teasing apart what's been taught to me and what's true and what's holding me back. And how am I staying in some of these situations? Because I'm afraid to leave. I'm afraid of what will happen. And so, you know, in some ways, it's similar to what my ancestors experienced. I mean, there's there's a point at which you recognize I'm on a plantation and this ain't right. And then the point where you're ready to leave. The liberation journey is everything between those two points where you finally realize, okay, wait, something's not right. I don't deserve this. I'm too sacred for this. I'm better than this. But then we have all these fears that keep us in there. And they're legitimate fears, right? It's not easy to be a Black person. It wasn't then. It isn't now, right? So it's not easy. We have concerns. How am I going to make a living? How am I going to have security? How am I going to have close family ties? What will my spirituality look like if I leave this church that say homophobic? And so the question is, how do I get to the point where I am not just aware, but I'm empowered to move off, move out of those spaces in that plantation? From what I understand, this isn't just a 
you know, a concept that you just decided one day to do a course on it out of nowhere. This is a process <laughs> that you've gone through in your life. Are you able to speak on that? Yeah. You know, a lot of this comes from my own reckoning. And I think my reckoning is consistent with America, Black America's reckoning. I'm a millennial. I'm like an old millennial. And I know for a lot of us, there was a pretty big wake up call around Trayvon Martin. So I am not, I don't think my journey is separate from, you know, the rest of America, but certainly realizing, you know, all the things that my parents, my middle class parents did to try to protect me. That's not, that's not a reality. I mean, on some level, I understood that because I was a sociology major when I was younger and stuff like that. But then to see it hit home back in 2013 and 2014 with Traylon Martin and then Mike Brown at Ferguson. And so for me, my own journey towards racial liberation has coincided with what's been going on in the U.S. And also me recognizing I'm in these spaces. I'm in these toxic work spaces. I'm in these other professional spaces. I'm in some spiritual and relational spaces that are not free. They're not designed to help me thrive. And if anything, as a Black woman, I, I'm being called into these spaces to help everybody but me thrive at cost to me. And I remember when I was like 33 or 34, I read a book by Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. And she's a theologian and a, and a clinical psychologist. It's a book about the strong Black woman identity. And it's called Too Heavy a Yoke, Black Women and the Burden of Strength. And I remember I started crying in the introduction because I knew she was talking about me. I was that Black woman who had been taught that all about caregiving, being overly caregiving, care about everybody else. And and that's so praised, even in Black churches, you know, this is the person who, you know, doesn't matter what's going on in her life. She's still here, here serving us, cooking up food, taking care of everybody. So that overly caregiving, overly independent, and just really minimal emotional capacity. And I realized that's me. And I'm getting played. I thought that that's, that was the best way to be a Black woman in this world. Because I was, I was, you know, eschewing the Jezebel stereotype. I, was, I wasn't Sapphire. I was always sweet and kind to everyone and loving. And so I'm trying to run away from these Black female stereotypes that have, that have really, we've been saddled with as Black women and right, running straight into another stereotype, this like stoic, perfect, strong Black woman who doesn't need anything. But that's related to high levels of anxiety and stress and other mental health issues. It's related to a lot of other health consequences like hypertension, diabetes. It's related to overspending and other forms of addiction. And so I'm see, I was seeing that in myself. Gosh, this is not working. And so that's when I started this journey of looking at what exactly, you know, what is this sociological world that's around me? What are the things that are keeping me here in place? And what's preventing me from really believing that I'm sacred too? And now my new mantra is like, oh, I'm just too sacred for this. I'm too sacred for this relationship. I'm too sacred for this job. I'm too too sacred for this interaction. I'm too sacred for this. And so then the question is, where are those spaces that affirm who I am? And how can I pour my life and my time into those? That's really powerful. You said, I'm sacred too, which I think is an interesting phrase too, as in, there's somebody else out there that is considered sacred, right? Mm-hmm. When you're saying two, what are, are you negating something? What are you challenging? Can you dig more into that? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're drawing out what's the biggest thing on my heart these days, <laughs> which 
which is this concept of God as a Black woman. I wrote a book called God as a Black Woman about February. And I, you know, I grew up in a Christian settings and I grew up in there in many Black church Christian settings, yet there was always this image of white Jesus. And, and in the broader culture, of course, we see this everywhere. We see white Jesus everywhere. And then even on, even in non, you know, church spaces, like literally on the dollar bill, it says, in God we trust, under a picture of a white slave holding man. <laughs> and so there's, he's the God on the money this white God, this white male God. And so everything in our society is designed to see the sacredness and the value of white cis men, particularly middle-class or higher, straight, et cetera. And we're taught that they're, I mean, they're sacred. I mean, if, if, if you, in general, it's a white man's testimony versus anybody else, people are going to automatically assume his testimony is legit. If it's a white man running against anybody else, people are going to automatically assume his, he's more worthy of leadership. And if you're a Black person, the more you comport yourself into that white male identity with behaviors, light skin, all sorts of things, the more successful you're going to be. I mean, there's research that shows that like light skinned Black people make more money in, in corporate America and get promoted faster. There's research that shows that People who conform to white supremacist standards of beauty, whether it's smaller nose, smaller lips, straighter hair, tend to get like even like lower sentences when they're sentenced for some sort of crime. And so there's this strong connection between the sacredness of white masculinity, essentially, and the denigration of everybody else. In my book, I really connect that to these notions of God this white male God. And at the bottom, who's the complete opposite of white male God? Black women. (laughs) And so we kind of labor and languish at the bottom of this social and moral pecking order. And if you look at the way Black women are treated, a Black woman who is socioeconomically oppressed and racially oppressed and gender oppressed, who dares to ask for help is called a welfare queen. That's a moral statement being made about Black women who need help because society hates us. (laughs) And if you look at research on little Black girls in elementary school in every single state, all 50 states in the United States, little Black girls are punished at least five times more and more harshly, more often and more harshly than white girls for the exact same grievances. And so. At every level, Black women are seen as immoral, lazy, weak, a burden. And that's the opposite of the way white men are seen. And so for me, a big part of my journey has been coming into contact with a divine who looks like me, talks like me, acts like me. I went on a 400-mile walking pilgrimage across central France in order to encounter 18 ancient Black Madonnas. These are, they're like 1,500 years old, 1,000 years old, and they are just fierce. And they all have different stories and names. And that was part of my journey of just seeing, oh, wow, God looks like me. So we've done some stories about these Black Madonna figures. I'm interested, if you could, for our audience, share what these are, what the significance at the time was, and what their significance to you today is and what you think it could bring to Black women and just the Black community in general. 
Absolutely. Just to give a little bit of context, there are about 450 Black Madonnas around the world. They exist on most continents. I don't think there's one in Antarctica, but the, you know they, they're in Latin America, they're in Africa, they're in Europe, they're in the, here in the United States. Many of them are hundreds of years old. It's hard to know exactly where they came from. Most of the ones that exist now are in Catholic churches. And so Catholicism has a claim on them. But what's fascinating about them is that many of them existed before Catholicism even existed. And so most of the Black Madonnas exist, particularly in Europe, because prior to the Roman Empire, people, including Black and Brown people from North Africa, worshipped a dark goddess, whether it was Black Artemis of ancient Ephesus, in Turkey, whether it was Isis in ancient Egypt, there are, there are lots of Inanna, there are all of these old Sumerian black dark goddesses that people worship. And when the Catholic Church came, they essentially gentrified them. And so the Catholic Church came into these territories along with, you know, empire and were threatened by these dark goddesses, these black goddesses, and then the people's worship, so-called pagan worship of them. And so, in, for example, in the fourth century in France, the bishop came into La Puy, France, was so threatened by the worship of the goddess there, the black goddess, that he completely demolished the temple and then built the Catholic cathedral on top of it. And so what happened is the people many of them black and brown because the Moors had occupied that area for 800 years. So there are a lot of black and brown people living in Southern France, living in Southern Spain at this time. And so when the, when the Catholic bishop came and demolished the temple, the people were like, okay, cool. Like we'll just have a black, we'll just worship the black Madonna and that will be our goddess. So they basically just adapted. And so it's this sort of syncretism, which is a mixing. And you, you know, you see that in Brazil too, where it's like, one of the Orishas mixed with the with a Madonna and that mixing of religions and cultures. You see that all over the world with Black Madonnas, where there's like this existing Black goddess that's worshipped. And then some new, whether it's Catholicism or in some cases, even Hinduism and um, Buddhism. So historically, it's like a little tricky to know. Um, but we do know that for about, you know, for the first 10,000 10, years or so, people on earth worshipped exclusive, almost exclusively a female goddess. And she was black because she was connected to the earth. And she was also black because this was mostly happening in the global south where people were black and brown. And so the idea of God as a man is a much more modern idea because back in, back in those days, people did not know that men were involved in procreation. So that's a modern scientific idea, right? So there's a, there's a nine-month gap between when someone has sex and when a baby is born. And so back then, people didn't think there was any connection between the two. <laughs> and so it's like women could just bear life. Women could bear life. And so therefore, women were God. And so this whole idea that there's a possibility that God is a man is a much newer idea. So God has been a black woman for most of humankind, and most people understood God to be a black woman. So today, what are the implications for society that views <laughs> it in the way that goes against most of human history? Yeah, 
Yeah, you know, I the implications for me have been life transformation. I mean, that's why I'm able to say I'm too sacred for this. After growing up in a society and a world where the most common frequent images of the sacred were always someone who looks the opposite of me, to then come into this idea that, oh, wait a second. I'm divine too. And I know that because I look like this divine figure that has transformed my whole identity. That has transformed my whole way of looking at the world. And so we can kind of create these communities where it's like, I see you, you know why I see you because I've been seen and you don't have to pull yourself up by your bootstrap to be in this space. You don't have to come a certain way. We all get to gather in our vulnerability and it really transforms justice spaces too, because oftentimes in those spaces, we don't even have the freedom to be real and say, I'm really struggling with this, or I'm not strong today, or I'm having mental health issues. And to actually create some of these black spaces where vulnerability and need is what brings us together, not stoicism or this sort of compulsive need to fight. So, and I, that's like common for most of us as black folks in America in terms of connection to Christianity specifically. But what you're describing clearly is different than what is <laughs> described or what is depicted. The orthodox, or the orthodox Christianity. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So what was that like for you coming to this different understanding? And, you know, for those of us who are also interested in and are trying to explore this more, how do you you know, put these yeah. two things together, but not feel like it's something that's, I don't know, is it heretical? Is it not? Her- I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, those are good questions. And I think even just the question, is this heretical, says a lot about how much we've been trained to police ourselves and to police others, you know, which I would say has harmed us. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I really take a lot of time and care with in my book is, is, is kind of showing how so much of the way even Black Christianity is understood now was really formed on the plantation. And some of it's life-giving and some of it's not. But one of the things that has inspired me as I've been on my own journey is going back and looking at history and seeing that what I'm doing, Black Christian women were doing on the plantation and in, in the Hush Harbor, which I'm not sure if y'all have talked about that a lot in this podcast, but the Hush Harbor was a spiritual space that took, that was common on plantations, and it was often led by Black women. And it was it usually took place out off you know off the plantation or outside of the the, the camp of the plantation in the woods at night, undercover, secretive because this this was illegal, it was outlawed. But basically, Black women would lead these spiritual practices and communities, and they would mix the most life-giving elements of Christianity, which is what they were taught on the plantation, with their ancestral West African spiritual practices. Again, that mixing, that syncretism. And Black women are really brilliant at harvesting the best of both worlds and bringing it together so that there can be light, so that there can be hope, so that there can be a sense of dignity in a world that's not dignifying most of the time. And so these hush harbor spaces were really powerful ways on the plantation for people to keep going, to love themselves and love each other well, to come together, to support each other. And even back then, it was a mix of ancestral West African spirituality 
and parts of Christianity that most resonated, that were most that were most life giving. And so I I really take that model and say, oh, black women have been doing this forever. My ancestors were doing this, and so now I take the parts of Christianity that are the most life giving, like my ancestors did, and I mix it with the other spiritualities that also help me to find dignity in this world that often is not dignifying to me as a Black woman. There's no clear path, even a clear spiritual path. And so the question is, how can I choose the elements, create a mosaic, and build something beautiful spiritually? I want to circle back now to this concept of the plantation. So today, I actually think the majority of us believe that we are truly free, but I see examples of, you know, us existing on plantations all around us, multiple plantations at once for probably most of us. How do we identify the plantation? How do we know if we're on a plantation? And, you know, what do we do to to get free from that? Ooh, that's a big question. It's a good one. I think one of the ways that we know that we're on a plantation is if we take stock of our wellness and we look to see, is this space nurturing my wellness? Is this a life-giving space for me? Do they care about my psychological, my spiritual, my social, and my physical wellness? And that could be a relationship. That could be a work situation. That could be a political group. It could be a spiritual group or space, a church, a congregation. The plantation is all about extraction. It's about reducing us to things and only valuing us based on our output. And so anytime I'm in a space where it just seems the value of my value as a Black woman is what can I produce? What can I offer? How can I heal? How can I add value to this situation as opposed to is this place or situation affirming my divinity? That's how we start to know. The, the challenge <laughs> though, at least the challenge for me was I would have sworn that I was in those spaces before because I was so disconnected from my needs. I was so disconnected from my dignity. And so one of the things that I needed to do first was start to read stories of other Black people who were more connected to their dignity and their needs than I was. So I could say, oh, that's what it looks like. You know, so reading Black theologians who are writing 50 years ago, reading novels and seeing, oh, this is a Black woman who seems to know what she deserves a bit more than I do. And so I look at a plantation space as one that, that makes it harder for me to connect with that. Now, getting off the plantation, <laughs> that's a whole nother thing. I think for, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about in my e-course that I, that I mentioned earlier is how do we identify what's keeping us here? The fear. What am I afraid of if I walk out of this relationship or this church situation or this job? So for me, when I, you know, I, I left my job at Duke, I was a professor at Duke Divinity School. And in 2019, I, I finally left. I was miserable the whole time, <laughs> but by 2016, I discovered I'm actually, I'm, I'm too sacred for this. I finally had that realization in 2016. I'm too sacred for this. But it took me another two or three years to get to the point where I felt like I could trust 
that abundance would catch me as I moved into the unknown. And that whole two to three year process was in me identifying my fears. And with each fear, trying to identify both spiritually and socially, how do I connect with a larger truth? Yes, it may be true that if I opt out of this capitalistic system, there will be some challenges in terms of how do I make a living and how do I keep my home? But the question is, is there a deeper truth? Is there a deeper truth that inspired my ancestors to leave the plantation, even though they had no idea what the future was? And that's the process. And it, it, it can be years, depending on the plantation. And one, one thing I learned is that, you know, there's no such thing as a single plantation escape. And it's been really helpful for me to read books like uh, Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead and other books like that to just show it's like leaving the plantations like chapter one, practically. <laughs> and then there's this whole new journey of figuring out how do I do life? I don't know the language. I don't know the economy. I don't know what my marketable skills are. I don't know what my spirituality, you know, just that. And every single time we come up against this, I don't know, we have an option to return to the plantation. And Harriet Tubman has been a, a huge ancestor in my whole like connection to ancestors practice because I imagine she felt so many of those fears too. She decided to leave the plantation and she had no idea what was going to happen next. But all she knew was that she was too sacred to stay and that the North Star would lead her. And the North Star, I would say, is spirituality. So for folks listening or for those of us who, you know, recognize that we're on a plantation, it's not a matter of just saying, you know, oh, I'm on a plantation, I need to leave, like, ASAP. For some people, it may, it may be what it takes, right? But I would imagine for most of us, you know, the, this fear that comes into mind, these questions you raise, it is valid, but it's like, how do you plot your escape? Obviously, most of us can say, I'm leaving, done with it, everything else, you have real concerns. So you have to plot your escape. And you described, I think you mentioned 2016 was when you first started thinking mm -hmm. about this. And then mm -hmm. 2019 is when you made your mm -hmm. escape from that particular plantation, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because the plantation is so alluring. It's so interesting. I mean, if you even look at our ancestors, right, the vast majority of Black people didn't try to escape and didn't, up, didn't revolt. And that's not because Black people are weak. We are so strong. It's that the entire system is designed to keep you there. The entire system is designed to teach you to literally put it into your DNA that this is the best you can do. This is all there is for you. So take it. Take it. This is the best you can do. And that's why getting connected to my own sacredness was so important for me because I had to finally realize, oh, no, I'm actually, I'm better than this. The system is telling me this is the best I can do, but my spirituality is telling me I'm too sacred for this. <laughs> and then also, it's not a weakness to stay on the plantation. I want to really, really make that clear. And people who find ways to escape are not better or more moral than others. I think the question for all of us is how can I be more free? And what does that look like? And for some people, being more free in this moment means going into those hush harbor spaces and practicing a spirituality that connects you with abundance. For other people, it means leaving. 
in this moment. My hope is that we're all just faithful to where we are in that moment and really, really, really kind to ourselves and recognizing there's a whole system here that I've been raised in that is designed to keep me in chains. And the capitalistic system is designed to keep us so frenzied, so busy, so stressed out all the time that we don't even develop those hush harbor spiritual practices to go out into the bush and connect with each other and connect with spirituality. So that I, I imagine as I think of my ancestors going out into the hush harbor to dance, to cry, to shout, to hug, to be together, to imagine, to imagine another reality, right? I mean, so many spiritual faces are about imagination too. I imagine every time they came back to the plantation to go to sleep in their cabins, they were like a little bit more, I'm, I'm more sacred than I was before I went. You know, just I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit more connected to who I really am because of those practices. But with, you know, with all these jobs that we work and with, you know, the the strong black woman personality and identity where it's like, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to volunteer for that. And I'm going to take care of this. And I'm going to, you know, it's like, it's designed so that we don't even stop to breathe, let alone dream and imagine. So sometimes it just starts with taking a break. I hear that. And (laughs) I see it clearly. I mean, I think all of us can relate to that, that frenzy you described and that focus on the, you know, material existence that's in front of us, but not on the the higher self or the unseen that we, that can really, you know, help us tap into that, that abundance or the spiritual abundance in ways that the material world just won't provide. But what do you think it looks like for our community if a critical mass of Black folks opted to leave their respective plantation? What happens then? I think there would still be a lot of internalized oppression that we would need to work through. (laughs) I wish I could say it would just be, you know, glory, glory time or glory days. But I think, you know, we've been formed in a certain way, so we would still need to keep working through trauma and internalized oppression. But I think ultimately... We would become what what's considered to be a matriarchal society, which is a society based on need and meeting people's needs. And so the more we get free, the more we're interested in the liberation of others because we've personally experienced it. And so then we start to pass around money and other resources in ways that are really based on need, as opposed to what is this person doing for me? How is the relationship that I get what, you know, I get what I get out of it, what I'm putting into it. And so I think there's a tendency towards nurture the more that we decolonize the ways that we have been anti-nurtured. Amazing. Christina, I appreciate your time today. It's been a great conversation. Is there any final thoughts you want to share with our audience? Yes. Read my book, God is a Black Woman. You can pre-order it now. It's from HarperCollins. And I wrote it for Black people. And I'm just excited to engage with the Black community around it. Just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. 
at Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value the work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do five or ten bucks a month, but every little bit makes a difference. Appreciate you supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tarek Alani, Patrick Sanders, Leslie Taylor Grover, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Tabitha Jacobs, Albany Jones, Brianna Lambeck, Courtney Morgan, Zane Murdoch, Aquia Tay, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the show. And Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Peace.